On today's episode of Mile Higher, we are going to be covering the Long Island serial killer. The beach off Ocean Parkway on Long Island, the final resting place of four women found murdered. And this man was named Rex Hewerman. And whether he knew it or not, police were hot on his trail. Shannon said she was afraid for her life. She kept repeating that someone was after her. In fact, when she tried to report her missing, the police actually told her, your sister ran away and doesn't care about anyone. Is it in the news? Those are the words of suspected serial killer Rex Hurman asking police as he was about to be put in jail. He said, I finally killed your sister and I'm going to watch her body rot and I might come show you one day personally. Dave saw her get into his dark truck and he drove off. This was the last time that Amber was seen alive. And with Rex's arrest, she now has a sense of closure. It's also a relief that he won't be able to hurt anyone else ever again. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 265. So today we have a lot to go over. We are going to be covering the Long Island serial killer, also known as Lisk or the Gilgo Beach serial killer. Now, this story did not get nearly enough coverage over the years, but it has now been really making headlines. It's been a top news story in the true crime community the last couple of weeks because an arrest has been made in the case. And even though this person claims he is innocent. I mean, it's, there's damning evidence. There's a lot of evidence. Against that, but, Mm -hmm. and he has been formally charged with murder Mm -hmm. and the prosecution is definitely planning on bringing some more charges. So this is an ongoing case. Mm -hmm. It's important Mm -hmm. to know. Yeah, yeah, that is important to note that we are covering this on August 9th. um, August 9th. So this is what we know as of today. More and more will come out. So if you're listening to this in hindsight, just a heads up there. But there's a lot to go over here. So let's just jump right in. So the Gilgo Beach murders are a string of previously unsolved linked homicides in which the remains of up to 18 people were found on the south shore of Long Island. The case, like I said, did not get enough coverage. And that's mainly likely because of what the victims did for work. They were written off and portrayed not as victims, but as prostitutes and dead hookers, not as people who were victims of brutal murders. Which, by the way, there will be no shaming tolerated in Mm -hmm. this episode. You will be banned, and that will be the end of that. Thank you, Janelle. Most of these victims that we know of were sex workers who used Craigslist, and they were all petite young women. Three of them were 4'11", one was 5'5", and they had all been strangled. There's going to be a lot to cover here, like we said, so we're going to get right into the case, starting with a young woman named Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Maureen Brainerd Barnes was born on June 14, 1982 in New London, Connecticut. She grew up nearby Groton. Maureen loved writing poetry and song lyrics. She was not a material girl. She didn't even wear makeup. Maureen was a straight-A student, but she ended up dropping out of high school at age 16 when she got pregnant. Maureen gave birth to a baby girl, got married, earned her GED, and then ended up getting divorced. She worked odd jobs to pay the bills, and one day in 2006, she saw an ad online for Model Mayhem and sent in photos. And through that process, she started getting messages from escort agencies. The money was enticing and Maureen needed it, but she didn't want to have to pay an escort agency. She wanted to be independent. 
So when she discovered Craigslist, she created a listing and started seeing clients out of Connecticut. That worked for a little while, but Maureen worried about being recognized in public. So from there, Maureen would take weekend trips to Manhattan to escort and tell family and friends she was off on modeling gigs. She briefly stopped escorting after she got pregnant again, but once she had the baby, she got back on Craigslist. Maureen was adamant that she only worked in parts of Manhattan. Her sister Melissa said she only worked out of her hotel room and never did out calls. Her family and friends had some idea of what Maureen was actually doing in New York, but they knew they couldn't stop her. Maureen was determined to do something when she set her mind to it. On the weekend of July 7, 2007, Maureen arranged to meet a client at a hotel in Manhattan. She went with a friend and former coworker named Sarah Carnes, who was also working as an escort. The weekend was slow, so Sarah decided to go back to Connecticut, and Maureen stayed in Manhattan. On that Sunday, July 9, 2007, Maureen left her hotel and went to Penn Station to catch a train back home. While she was there, she spoke to her sister Melissa, or Missy, Can, on the phone. And Maureen said she was going to take the train home, but first, she's going to step outside to smoke a cigarette. And after that, Maureen vanished. Melissa believes a former client stalked Maureen and took her. Another report stated that at one point that weekend, Maureen had phoned a friend from the Port Authority. She told the friend someone had robbed her of all of her money that she had earned. Maureen asked for a ride home, but the friend said she couldn't come get her and nobody heard from her again. On July 9, 2007, Maureen's phone's last cell site location pinged at approximately 11.56 p.m. in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge. There was no more activity on Maureen's phone until three days after she disappeared. On July 12, 2007, someone used her phone to make two outbound calls checking her voicemail. The calls were made from a cell site location near the Long Island Expressway in Italandia. This is a few miles from Gilgo Beach. Two weeks later, after Maureen disappeared, her friend Sarah got a call from a blocked number. And when she picked up, the caller asked if she was from Connecticut. Sarah told him that she was. The caller asked, do you happen to know Marie? She's got a tattoo on her right arm in red. It says Nicole or something. And sure enough, Maureen did have a tattoo on her arm. It was the name of her daughter, Nicolette, which was written in red ink. So Sarah knew that it was her. She told the caller, that's my friend. She's been missing for two weeks. And the caller told her that Maureen was fine, that he had just seen her and that she was staying at a whorehouse in Queens. And Sarah said, why would she be staying at a whorehouse? She's independent. Can you give me the address? But the caller said he didn't know it offhand. Sarah asked if the caller could call her back so she could tell the cops. And the caller agreed. But of course, he never did call Sarah back. And Sarah believes that this caller was Maureen's killer. By the way, um, Marie is the name that she would use uh, on Craigslist, the alias. Okay. So whoever mm-hmm. was calling had to have known that. And- it was like a client. Yes, probably. And her sister said that once she told detectives what Maureen was doing in Manhattan, it was as if they stopped caring completely. In fact, when she tried to report her missing, the police actually told her, your sister ran away and doesn't care about anyone. And I swear I've heard some crazy statements come from police that it's hard to believe they would ever speak to a victim's family that way, but it never stops shocking me. That's insane. I mean, why are you in this field of work if you're going to say things like that to people? It's so evil. So her family tried to get her on the National Registry of Missing Persons, and it took them two and a half years before they had any success doing so. So we're going to talk about the next victim, and that is Melissa Bartholomew. She was born on April 14th, 
1985 in Buffalo, New York. She grew up in Buffalo and attended cosmetology school there and had a younger sister named Amanda. She was petite, very beautiful and smart, but tough too. She was in beauty school and dreamed of opening her own salon one day. When she was 21, she moved to New York City, but she still was in regular contact with her sister Amanda. She rented a $700 a month basement apartment in the Bronx with her eight cats. Melissa told her parents that she was working in cosmetology, but her landlady knew that she had actually been working as a stripper. The two were very close, so Amanda kept secrets for Melissa that even their mother didn't know. So she was the only one in the family that knew Melissa was escorting. But by that point, Melissa's family did know that she was working as a stripper and not as a cosmetologist. Melissa had first started escorting after she moved to New York. Eventually, in 2008, she switched from walking the streets of Times Square to meeting clients through Craigslist exclusively. On April 11, 2009, Melissa sent a text to her sister Amanda, firming up the details of a visit to see her in New York. The next day, Melissa deposited $1,000 at her bank, money from a date that she'd had earlier. She withdrew $100 and then headed out. Melissa was last seen alive on that afternoon of July 12, 2009. She had been sitting on the curb outside her basement apartment on Underhill Avenue. Later that evening, she made a phone call to her pimp. Melissa had been working on her own, so he hadn't been setting up her dates. It's not known whether the call went to voicemail. Her pimp later went on to say that he knew Melissa had set up a $1,000 overnight out call in Long Island. He said he even knew the place and knew of the guy paying for the overnight. Her pimp offered to give her a ride, but since Melissa was working on her own, she declined. The next day when the family hadn't heard from Melissa, they tried to file a missing persons report. In fact, they continually tried to file the report for three days, but the police shut them down every time, which is just crazy to me. They said that Melissa was an adult with no history of mental illness or psychiatric prescriptions, so she wasn't missing just because they couldn't find her. And again, the family's attorney said that once Buffalo PD found out that she had been escorting, they completely wrote her off. They said Melissa was a hooker and that they weren't going to assign a detective to something like this. The police only started investigating 10 days after Melissa went missing. A week after Melissa disappeared, a call came into her family's home phone, and the caller ID showed that it was Melissa's phone number. Melissa's mother, Lynn, and her sister, Amanda, were shocked, and Amanda picked up, thinking she would hear Melissa's voice on the other end. But it was a man, and the voice was self-assured. He asked, is this Melissa's little sister? I hear you're a half-breed. Amanda's father is black, so whoever the caller was clearly knew what Amanda looked like, and he had called to taunt her. And the calls continued after the first. The caller usually rang around dinner time between 5.30 and 6.30, and he'd only stand the line for about a minute and a half. In one call, the caller taunted Amanda and asked if she knew what Melissa did for a living. The caller said, are you going to be a whore like your sister? It seemed that he would only speak to Amanda. Once the caller would hear Lynn's voice, he would instantly hang up the phone. So Amanda was the only one who had heard the voice. One call pinged from Madison Square Garden, which is right above the transit hub for the Long Island Railroad. So people began to think that the suspect was a commuter who worked in New York City and commuted to Long Island. One last call came in on August 26, 2009, and the caller outright told Amanda what he had done to Melissa. He said, I finally killed your sister, and I'm going to watch her body rot, and I might come show you one day personally. He also said, do you think you'll ever see her again? You won't. I killed her. Then he hung up, and that was the last time they ever heard from him. 
The caller made a total of seven calls, and the police traced some of the calls to Midtown Manhattan near Times Square and another to Long Island, Massapequa. Obviously, Melissa's family was worried that the caller knew where they lived, so they moved soon after. The calls show that he had no shame and got off on power, humiliation, and fear. The family thinks the caller was holding Melissa hostage and that she'd been alive during this time. They think that she did something, maybe hit him or yelled at him, and he made those calls because he was angry, and then he finally killed her. Yeah, you don't often see that with serial killers where they're taunting their you know, victims' families like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty risky to do that because mm-hmm. calls can be traced and all that. So I, I tend to believe what the family believes, that she probably gave him hell in some way, shape, or form. And Well, they said she was a really strong-willed type of person, too. Yeah, I hope she messed him up. Yeah, that's what... They said as well. I think it is interesting that the calls were all under three minutes, you know, around a minute and a half, because that's someone that knows that police would be able to get a more precise location or track it better if it was over three minutes. So you have to ask who's someone that would just know that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that is. Because I mean, you know, if you're on the other end, you'd want to keep them on the phone and keep them talking to hopefully Mm -hmm. get the, the police to be able to start tracing the call. But he clearly knew. Yeah. Keep this short. The next victim is Megan Waterman, and she was born on January 18, 1988 in Portland, Maine. She was a 22-year-old who had a daughter, Liliana, or Lily, when she was 19. She was raised in a working-class town of Portland, Maine, and she moved to Scarborough when she was in junior high. Megan had a hard life growing up. She was estranged from her mother for most of it due to her drinking. Megan was a spirited girl and a wild child, but it seems she was always looking to fill a deep hole in her heart, and it sometimes led her down the wrong path. Megan met her boyfriend, Robert Blake, at a club in Portland. Robert and his crew were from New York, and he quickly introduced Megan to escorting. But Robert was also very abusive. Megan ended up falling for his friend, Akeem Cruz, who became Megan's boyfriend. Akeem also acted as Megan's pimp. Robert had taken Akeem under his wing to teach him how to traffic drugs and girls. As traffickers typically do, Akeem love-bombed Megan and made her all sorts of promises like a house, a family, and things like that. But he told her she just needed to have sex for money for a little while before that could happen. Then those promises turned into threats, and Akeem was also very abusive towards Megan, even in front of her daughter. Megan's family didn't know she was selling sex, as she was more secretive about it than the other girls. But her mom did find out from her son's ex-girlfriend, who'd heard the news from someone else. Her mother was shocked, and that's when she learned Megan had been previously arrested for prostitution. Megan tried telling her family that all she was doing was dancing, but they knew it wasn't true. They begged her to stop and leave Akeem, but Megan continued to see him, and they took long bi-monthly trips to Long Island. Akeem used girls as drug mules, so that's probably what he was doing with Megan, and in addition to pimping her out. Megan's family last saw her in early June of 2010. She had boarded a Concord Trailways bus in Maine bound for New York. She was not with Akeem, who was in Brooklyn visiting family. On the 5th, she checked in alone at a Holiday Inn Express in Hopog, New York. Earlier that day, she called home to talk to her three-year-old daughter, Lily. Megan usually called home three times a day to check on her daughter. That night, Megan had arranged to meet with a client from Craigslist. Megan usually brought Akeem along on calls, but that night he left her at the hotel alone. She was last seen on surveillance cameras leaving the Holiday Inn at 1.30 a.m. A minute later, her cell phone communicated with the burner phone, most likely the client's. She did not bring her wallet, her keys, or any money. After this, the burner phone had no further activity. Megan's phone's last known location was Massapequa Park at 3.11 a.m. 
Two days passed and Megan hadn't called home. It wasn't like her to not call and check in on her daughter. So on the 8th, her family reported her missing, but it took the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department one month before they did anything about Megan's disappearance. Akeem is not considered a suspect in Megan's disappearance. However, he was charged in 2012 with the interstate trafficking of prostitutes and he was sentenced to three years in prison. Did you know that the average break-in lasts eight to 10 minutes? So fast response time is absolutely crucial. And that's why Simply Safe Home Security launched its breakthrough technology 24-7 Live Guard Protection. Help stop crime in real time. Now Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can actually see, speak to, and deter intruders in your home through the new Smart Alarm wireless indoor camera. Monitoring agents can now warn intruders that they are being recorded and that police are on their way in real time, stopping them in their tracks. 24-7 live guard protection is made possible by the new Smart Alarm wireless indoor camera available with the Fast Protect monitoring plan. The new Smart Alarm indoor camera is the only indoor security camera that can trigger the alarm and instantly deter intruders with a built-in siren. With advanced motion detection and vision AI, the Smart Alarm indoor camera can sense the difference between potential intruders and pets to reduce false alarms. 24-7 Live Guard protection and the new Smart Alarm indoor camera work seamlessly as part of the entire Simply Safe security system to keep your whole home safe from break-ins, fires, flooding, and more. We love Simply Safe in our house. It gives us such peace of mind. I love that I can pull up the app at any moment and check any of my cameras, check on where my pets are, or if I am home alone and I hear a creepy noise, I can pull it up and I feel a lot better. And right now, Mile Higher listeners get a special 20% off any Simply Safe system when you sign up for a free month trial of Fast Protect Monitoring. This special offer is for a limited time only. Visit simplysafe.com slash mile higher. That's simplysafe.com slash mile higher. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So next, let's talk about 27-year-old Amber Lynn Costello, who was born in Charlotte, North Carolina and raised in the beach town of Wilmington. She was a bright girl growing up, but she lived a hard life. Her family struggled with money issues and alcohol addiction. And sadly, at only six years old, Amber was molested by a neighbor, which caused her mother to have a mental breakdown. As a teenager, she began using drugs and she developed a heroin addiction. Her sister Kimberly, Kim Overstreet, is very upfront about her and her sister's lives. Kim had been escorting on and off since she was 18. She was the one who introduced Amber to sex work when she was 17. Amber continued to struggle with drugs throughout her adult life. She was living with her second husband in Clearwater, Florida, trying to get her life together and get off drugs. But she fell into debt and her sister bought her a plane ticket to New York. Amber completed a 28-day treatment program there, but sadly, she relapsed soon after and fell back into sex work. Amber was living in a house with two men and Kim, and they were all addicted to drugs at the time. Amber and her sister were doing sex work to support their addictions, although at the time, Kim was doing it less and less. The two male roommates would arrange for the girls to meet clients, and then that money was spent on heroin for the house. They would also run this sort of scam on various men. One of the male roommates would set up an in-call with a male client, and then after the client arrived and paid for the female roommate, one of the male roommates would burst in the house pretending to be an angry boyfriend. Then the client would flee the house and they would keep the money. After one of these incidents in July of 2010, an angry client posted on a Long Island erotic services message board. He explained that he had been scammed by Amber and wanted revenge. A user responded, no one from this board needs to be involved. 
I have friends who can take care of this shit. So the client responded with Amber's name and address. And he wrote, I want to be spiteful and get revenge. I will go by there tonight. I could seriously do some time for the things I want to do to this provider and her boyfriend. The user later said he got cold feet and revenge wouldn't be worth it. But the user did reply three days later saying, a friend of ours told me today that you won't hear from these two girls anymore. The messages are very ominous, especially when you consider what happened eight weeks later. Amber and her roommate Dave Schaller did another one of these scams on September 1st, 2010, and this client was not happy about being tricked. Dave remembers he was hulking, Frankenstein-like figure who looked like an ogre. His size and empty gaze stuck out to Dave as did the stranger's first-generation Chevy Avalanche. The man got into the dark-colored truck and drove off. The next night, the same client kept calling, offering $1,500 for an overnight out call. Amber's roommate was skeptical since it seemed like a lot of money, maybe too good to be true. But Amber decided to meet with him anyway after he called several times and she felt more comfortable. Amber was picked up by the client because he wasn't comfortable going to the house with the boyfriend. Late that night, Amber left her house at 1112 America Avenue in West Babylon to meet that same man. Dave saw her get into his dark truck and he drove off. Another witness recalled seeing a dark-colored truck drive down the street after Amber left. The roommate shared a cell phone, and Amber didn't bring it with her when she left. This was the last time that Amber was seen alive. When she didn't return home the next day, Dave called her sister Kim, but Kim told him not to worry. The first thing she said was that Amber had probably gone off to get high with someone. Amber was never reported missing. But it's clear that Dave saw this strange man and his Chevy Avalanche. And as the last person to presumably see Amber alive, and probably also her killer, this would be crucial information for the police. Dave gave the police all of this info, but there's still a lot of questions as to how well they initially pursued the tip, because Dave had told investigators about this man back in 2010, and this description wasn't shared with the public. So could the case have been solved sooner had they put that information out there? I believe 100% that is true. Next, we're going to talk about Shannon Gilbert, who was born October 24th, 1986 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She was very smart. She graduated in high school at the age of 16. She was also a wild child who didn't like being told what to do. And at just 24 years old, she was going to be on her own for the first time, creating a life for herself. Things hadn't always been easy for Shannon. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 12, and she eventually stopped taking her meds as they gave her the shakes. The family had moved to upstate New York when she was young to escape their father, who was a heroin addict. But Shannon's mother, Mary's new boyfriend, was abusive, so Shannon and her two sisters spent two years in foster care. She eventually moved to Jersey City to try to become a singer and actress, but singing wasn't really panning out, and she still needed to make money, so Shannon turned to sex work. She began posting ads on Craigslist and meeting up with clients in the area, and she started to make a decent amount of money. But a lot of that money went to recreational drugs, and once a boyfriend beat her to the point where a surgeon had to insert a titanium plate in her jaw. But Shannon was still trying to make her way in the world. She started taking a college course and she moved to a new place by herself. On the night of April 30th, 2010, Shannon was contacted on Craigslist by a client who went by the name of Joseph Brewer. Shannon contacted Michael Pack, who was a driver that she trusted and had used before, and arranged for him to take her to his house in an Oak Beach gated community. The address was 8 The Fairway in Oak Beach Association. That night, Michael dropped Shannon off and she entered the home alone in a wig, a leather jacket, 
and jeans, and Michael would wait outside the car just in case Shannon needed help. At around 5 a.m., Joseph came out of the house and asked Michael for help. When Michael went inside, he found Shannon, who was clearly in distress and on the phone with 911. The call lasted 23 minutes. Shannon said she was afraid for her life. She kept repeating that someone was after her. She didn't give an address or tell the dispatcher what was happening, and she refused to leave with Michael. Here's some of that 911 call. State police. Yeah, there's somebody after me. I'm sorry? There's somebody after me. Where are you? There's somebody after me. Okay, where are you? There's somebody after me. Where are you, ma'am? I don't know. You're driving right now? No, I'm inside the house. I'm sorry? I'm inside the house. What house? I don't know. Can you place where I am? I'm sorry? Can you place where I am? No, I can't. What's your callback number you're calling from? Huh? What phone number are you calling from? What is asking me? Please. Are you in Suffolk County or Nassau County? Um, I'm in Long Island. Where on Long Island are you? Yeah, you want to call the girl? No. 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 No, stop. No. She then runs out of the house screaming for help. She then banged on the neighbor's door, who's a 75 year old man. And when he opened the door, he found Shannon sobbing and he offered to call the police. But Shannon begged him not to. And then she took off. Shannon banged on the door of another neighbor who didn't answer. Both neighbors called 911 after Shannon knocked on their doors. And here's the end of Shannon's 911 call and part of the neighbor's 911 call. Shannon. Hello. Hello. Shannon eventually bolted from the neighbor's house, and by the time Michael reached it, Shannon had disappeared. The only sign of her were a set of footprints in the sand, and just like that, she was gone. Imagine if that woman had opened the door and let her in, which I understand. But yeah, I mean, you don't know who's chasing her, and they might harm you as well. The police arrived at Joseph's home and searched it. He, Michael, and the neighbor were questioned, but all three of them were cleared. The police investigated, but not for that long. Leads dried up by the summer of 2010 and the case was unsolved with not much to go on. 
Shannon's mother and sister tried reporting Shannon missing, but they were being sent back and forth between police in New York and Jersey City. It actually took four months after the missing report was filed for it to be connected to Shannon's 911 call, but Shannon's disappearance was not in vain. That's because the search for her led to police accidentally making an important but very gruesome discovery. On December 11, 2010, a Suffolk County police officer was training a cadaver dog just a few miles up the road from where Shannon disappeared. This was Ocean Parkway, a desolate stretch of road that runs through the south shore of Long Island. It's lined with brush and marshes. They were making their way through the grassy bank alongside the road when the officer noticed his dog picked up on a scent. So he followed it into the brush. And when he looked in a few feet, he found something. Human remains. Investigators immediately descended on the area and they closed off Ocean Parkway and spent days searching for clues. What they found on December 13th was three more sets of human remains, all wrapped in brown burlap sacks. The victims were young women. Two of the bodies were badly decomposed and the third was skeletal remains. As it turns out, none of the bodies belonged to Shannon Gilbert. The victims were identified as Melissa Bartholomew, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Amberlyn Costello. Each of the victims had been strangled. These women became known as the Gilgo Four. All the victims were sex workers who had advertised on Craigslist, and after 48 hours, the police had no leads into who killed these four women, but it became clear that this was the work of the same killer, who was potentially still on the loose in Long Island. The killer had arranged the remains about the same 500-foot distance from each other. In other words, the killer had used Gilgo Beach as sort of a trophy garden, sort of how like hunters display their trophies on the wall. The police continued to comb Ocean Parkway and the South Shore looking for more clues, and what they found were six more bodies along the beach. On March 29, 2011, the Nassau County Police discovered a human skull outside the entrance to the John F. Kennedy Memorial Wildlife Sanctuary. The skull was identified as belonging to a former sex worker named Jessica Taylor. Jessica was a 20-year-old whose body had been previously found nude, headless, and handless, sitting on top of a sheet of plastic in the Manorville area of Pine Barrens in 2003. The killer had also gouged out her tattoo likely making it harder to identify her. She had last been seen working at Port Authority about a week before her body was discovered in 2003. Sadly, not much is known about Jessica's life. The new discovery of her skull brought the total of bodies to five found on the beach, but none of these bodies belonged to Shannon Gilbert. She was still missing. On April 4th, 2011, three more bodies were found, one belonging to an Asian male who dressed in women's clothing, so police thought it was possible the victim was a transgender woman. They were missing four teeth and thought to be in their late teens to early 20s, and they had been dead for five to 10 years, and their cause of death was blunt force trauma. It's been theorized that this person was working as an escort, and the killer may have picked them up, and upon discovering that they were actually a trans woman, may have become angry and beat the victim to death. Of course, that's just a theory, but definitely possible. The second body belonged to an African-American female toddler. She'd been wrapped in a blanket with no immediate signs of trauma. The third set of remains belonged to a formerly unidentified victim whose partial remains were found in Manorville, New York on November 19, 2000. When those remains were first discovered, police found her torso wrapped in garbage bags in the woods near the intersection of Halsey Manor Road and Mill Road. Her hands, head, and leg had been cut off. A head, right foot, and hands found on Gilgo Beach on April 4, 2011 were originally thought to belong to a sixth Jane Doe 
but they were later identified as belonging to the same woman whose torso was found in Manorville a decade earlier. The victim was known as the Manorville Jane Doe until she was identified as Valerie Mack in 2020. She was identified through the use of genetic genealogy. Valerie was a 24-year-old girl from Philadelphia who was working as an escort. She went missing in 2000. Authorities identified her from a DNA sample that was collected from her son, Benjamin, when he was incarcerated in 2019. Police believe that Valerie and Jessica Taylor's cases are connected, as both bodies were found in the same area and disposed of in similar ways, and with Jessica's head found in Gilgo Beach, this would potentially link the two cases back to the same Long Island serial killer that killed the Gilgo Four. On the 11th, police found a plastic bag containing dismembered skeletal remains near Jones Beach State Park. These remains matched a torso that had been discovered on June 28, 1997 in Hempstead Lake State Park in Lakeview, New York. The torso had been placed in a green Rubbermaid container and dumped on a roadside near the western part of the lake. The torso belonged to an unidentified young African-American woman. On her left breast, the woman had a tattoo of a heart-shaped peach with a bite mark and two drips from the center. So she was nicknamed Peaches or Jane Doe No. 3 by investigators. The remains found in 2011 and in 1997 were officially DNA matched as the same person in December 2016. Investigators also discovered through DNA that Peaches was the mother of the female toddler, Baby Doe. Both were wearing similar gold jewelry, and both Peaches and Baby Doe are still unidentified. It's believed that Peaches may not have been a sex worker, but someone personal to the killer. And what's really interesting is four days ago from recording this, there was an interview that was put out on YouTube by a man named Joseph Giacalone. And Joseph is a retired NYPD sergeant and former commanding officer of the Bronx cold case squad and he had an interview with a man named uh joshua zeman and joshua is a producer and writer on the series the killing season which like largely focuses on um the gilgo beach serial killer but also other various serial killers as well anyways though in the interview joseph claims that peaches and baby doe may be identified within the next few weeks due to which i I believe it was a task force um where he got this information from but yeah, it could be very soon that they figure out wow. who who these are. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. I know. I was watching that same interview earlier today, Janelle, actually. And I do want to say, after watching it, my own interpretation of what he was saying about the identification of, of Peaches and Baby Doe happening soon was very like, I don't know. It almost looked like he was reaching for something because the interviewer was, you know, they were on a podcast, actually. I forget what the actual um, podcast is called, but it's associated with a, a news network. A law and crime podcast is what it is. And she was like, she was like, oh, do you have anything that is new or, you know, was just kind of like pushing him to give some some more information. And that's what he said, which maybe there, there's truth to that, but there's not there wasn't anything else beyond just that simple statement. So, okay, and there's no like backup proof to back up that at all it's just what anywhere else that's just what he thinks yeah well hopefully he's right well i think that maybe news he is came on the heels of uh as we'll get into uh, an unidentified victim that was very very recently identified mm-hmm. so i think that's to me why i think it might have some more credibility like they're kind of getting it done now yeah all the dna tests well, are so much is back. coming out like right. every it's single day every day unfolding yeah. So Valerie's bones were discovered on Gilgo Beach near the body of Baby Doe east of Cedar Beach. And since Baby Doe's mother is Peaches, who was found in Lakeview, New York, and the Jones Beach State Park, there are more links that suggest these murders are all the work of the same killer. 
and there were more remains discovered near Peaches on April 11th. The police found a skull on the side of the road in Jones Beach, six miles west of where the Gilgo Four were found. And this skull was matched to a pair of severed legs that were found nearby Fire Island on April 20th, 1996. Investigators knew that the Fire Island Jane Doe was a Caucasian woman between 35 and 50 years old. Her torso and hands are still missing. Very recently, on August 4th, after 26 years, Fire Island Jane Doe was identified as Karen Vergata. Karen was 34 when she was last heard from on Valentine's Day, 1996. She was living in Manhattan at the time and working as an escort. Karen was not reported as missing. Her father moved to have her legally declared dead in 2017, and he was granted control over her estate and unclaimed assets. She left behind two children, Gary and Eric, who were not informed of her death by police. Her father, Dominic, died in 2022. Genetic genealogy allowed police to presumptively identify the remains as Karen in 2022. Then using a buccal swab from a family member, her identity was definitively confirmed. Shannon's remains were discovered on December 13, 2011, 19 months after she disappeared. In May of 2012, the Suffolk County Medical Examiner classified Shannon's death as undetermined. He believed that Shannon was in a drug-induced panic when she ran out of the house, which makes that call make a lot more sense. The police thought that Shannon had accidentally drowned in the marsh, but her family believed she was murdered, most likely by the Long Island serial killer. The family lawyer, John Ray, claimed that the medical examiner told him two neck bones were missing from Shannon's remains. John also claimed that a hole had been drilled in Shannon's hyoid bone, but this was a myth. The pathologist who conducted the second autopsy said it was cracked at one edge, so this would show the hyoid bone wasn't missing either. The toxicology report did not find any drugs in her system, and because Shannon's hyoid bone was cracked at one edge, it indicated that she may have been strangled. So there's a lot of debate over whether or not Shannon was on drugs in that call. It sounded like it to me, unless there was some other reason she was fearful to say exactly where she was or. So this is the thing for me, and uh, people have gone really back and forth on whether or not Shannon was a victim of the Long Island serial killer. Given the location, I think the first thing that comes to me is like, he would have really had to been there, be there at like an opportune time, and he mm-hmm. didn't place bodies in that area. And it's very thick, it's very marshy, it's very wooded. Like, it would have to be a pretty big coincidence. Yeah. At the same time, too, the talk screen says that she didn't have any drugs in her system she was this was like documented that she used cocaine and pot and prescription drugs so i think you know maybe yes it could be possible that she wasn't on any at that time but you would think that as you know someone Mm -hmm. that has recently used those drugs that that would at least show up and i think some people have floated the idea that well her remains were sitting in this marshy area over Mm -hmm. a long you know new york winter that yeah. there could be tissue degradation that would lead to that sort of conclusion. And they did actually bring in the uh, FBI's behavioral analysis unit and they analyzed all 23 minutes of that call and they found that it was more uh, kind of aligned with someone that wasn't a drug-induced panic versus someone that's yeah. actively being chased. And kind of what more when you think about the circumstances, it's odd that she didn't go back to the car with her driver who she knew, who she trusted 
instead of, you know, and she stayed in a house where she was potentially in danger. That's not to say that, like, the people involved that you hear on that call are not shady figures. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally. The guy that's, you know. There could have still been. I mean, I think you also have to consider that the uh, the hyoid bonus was cracked. I mean, yeah. And we don't know if that's from decomposing or something that happened after she was deceased. But that does lend to maybe there was some sort of violence that occurred. Yeah. Prior to to her death. Yeah. I mean, Um, we certainly don't have all the facts, but if we're just speculating, I mean, my guess would be that she. This was a separate incident from. No, I I think there was I think she was attacked by someone. I don't think she just had a. She just like ran into the marsh and and yeah, I don't succumb to the elements or something. Although it is it's possible, but um, but I do think that it was a mixture that she was. I mean, she could have even have been drugged as well by that person, but it seemed like she's has some state of confusion. But I also think that there was an attacker. But I mean, no one really knows. So, and that's the thing I think a lot of people have mentioned that is that it doesn't have to be that she was murdered and it has to be like the Long Island serial killer did it. Yeah, it's right. You know, unfortunately, this is not violence uh, against sex workers is a rampant thing. So it's very possible there's many other killers out there or people that are violent against Mm -hmm. um, people in this trade. And this was just kind of a coincidence. It was happening kind of all along the same same track, but it could very well be a very completely separate event. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't believe that she just ran off and succumb to the elements i mean yeah i mean yeah i guess it is possible i don't know it's, it's a pretty it's say. a pretty remote area out there mm-hmm. and it's marshy you know if you were trudging through that you could get stuck out there and just nobody comes comes to get you but her hyoid bone i don't know i don't know but again like a lot of t- you know there's a lot of factors that could have affected that as well it but, is a very fragile and yeah. small and again like the mm-hmm. winter and the weathering but yeah, I, I do true. think that you have to take the 911 call on account she's literally saying that someone's going to come kill her and then she ends up dead mm-hmm. so yeah I can see why people go all different directions with this yeah police cleared the individuals though that were with her so yeah, well, that's something I mean again I'm not going to take that for more than a grain of salt how but, many people have we seen cleared yeah. where well, and they're they clearing people via polygraph, so that's mm-hmm. always encouraging too. But yeah, I don't know. It's definitely a lot of different scenarios that could have played out there. Yeah. But obviously, there was a lot of interest from the public in trying to track down this Long Island serial killer, but people were left scratching their heads. Here are some of the theories people floated. The first was that the killer had to know the area well and even could be a local. There had to be some sort of reason he could spend so much time in the Gilgo Beach area and not be noticed or arouse suspicion. Many people believe the murders were the work of a cop, either active or retired. The New York Post reported that two NYPD cops, one current and one former, were under suspicion. The NYPD denied this, but the theory gained a lot of traction. It was widely believed the suspect had law enforcement ties. He was able to fly under the radar. But again, this could have just been due to the cops mismanagement of this case rather than you know some skill that this person had but again he knew how to use burner phones and call from densely populated areas so there was some thought put into their methods the public was terrified internet sleuths mobilized and people speculated that the murders were the work of more than one killer perhaps a team 
but some thought it would be unlikely that the beach would be used as a dump site for two separate killers. Which obviously, it's very common for public property to be the place where people will dump bodies because. Yeah, and this area is like pretty remote. So Mm -hmm. it's could it could be used by multiple people. I mean, you never know. I know there's there's communities online on the dark web and stuff where people like this get together and they Mm -hmm. talk about this stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's locations where people market for a good place to dump bodies. Some people online thought the burlap the bodies were found in could have been used by fishermen or clamors since the killer could have been one. But the burlap was actually more the type used in sandbags that are commonly used as erosion control in the area. So the killer could have been a local. Or they believe that this person could have been someone who vacationed in Long Island as the murders occurred during the summer season from Memorial Day to Labor Day. But the case went cold. In 2020, police released photos of a belt found during the initial 2010 Gilgo Beach search. They wouldn't say much about the belt, just that they believe it was handled by the killer and didn't belong to any of the victims. It's embossed with two initials. They either read HM or WH, depending on how you look at it. But from there, developments in the case seem to be few and far between. In January of 2022, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office put together a joint task force to take a renewed look at the Gilgo Beach murders. This included a team that worked with officers in the Suffolk County Police Department, New York State Police, Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI. And that brings us to March 14th, 2022. A joint task force made a huge break in the case. Remember after Amber was murdered, Dave told the police that she had gotten into a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche, so the police knew the killer owned that car. Investigators poured over car registration records in Long Island until they found a promising lead. And on that day in March, they were able to identify a suspect by searching for the owner of that car. Police discovered a Massapequa Park man who had a first-generation Chevy Avalanche registered under his name. And the man fit the physical description that Dave had given in 2010. And not only were the avalanche and the description significant, but they had already tracked the phone pings related to the murders that were connected in Massapequa. They also tracked the phone pings that were concentrated in Midtown Manhattan, right where this new suspect worked. And this man was named Rex Hewerman. And whether he knew it or not, police were hot on his trail. The task force obtained 300 subpoenas, search warrants, and other legal processes to find evidence. And boy, did they. But before we get into how police caught Rex, let's talk a little bit more about who he was. With a busy fall season just around the corner, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door you'll save time eat well and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle because sometimes you just simply don't have time to cook anything whatsoever you just want to throw something in the microwave and heat it up but you don't want to eat some nasty bad for you frozen meal i'm especially a fan of their protein plus meals because i'm all about getting that protein in their meals come with 30 grams of protein or more per serving Looking for calorie-conscious options ahead of the busy season? Try delicious dietitian-approved calorie-smart meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. 
Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are ready in just two minutes. So all you have to do is heat and enjoy and then get back to crushing your goals. With Factor, you can rest assured you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions, source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices, and feature sustainably sourced seafood in their meals. Seriously, absolutely delicious, ready to eat meals that are also good for you. Check out this special offer and head to factormeals.com slash milehigher50 and use code milehigher50 to get 50% off. That's code milehigher50 at factormeals.com slash milehigher50 to get that 50% off. Rex was a 59-year-old architect who was born and raised in Long Island. He owned his own architectural firm, RH Consultants and Associates, and his offices were in Midtown Manhattan. According to an interview he did with a French YouTuber, Rex said that he was born and raised on Long Island and worked in Manhattan since 1987. Here's part of that interview. So I have one tool that pretty much used in almost every job. This looks like a tomato. And it's actually a cabinet maker's hammer. It is persuasive enough when I need to persuade something. Not someone. Something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it always yields excellent results. So and funny. at the end of the project, whatever piece of furniture or what I'm working on, it always helps it come out beautifully. Okay, great. So you would be kind of a, that kind of hammer for your uh, for your business. That's what you're saying. You if that doesn't to, exist. That's what you would be. Sometimes I have to be the. <laughs> Heavy framing hammer? <laughs> Other times I'm the lightweight hammer just to nudge things along. All right. I guess it's a hammer. We got it. Oh, God, it's creepy. It's creepy. Oh, my Ugh. God. Help. Now, the guy who did this interview has been heavy on the copyright claim, but this is fair use. So, and trying to make money off of that clip is honestly sick. So. Rex does look like a big guy. I'm trying to like figure yeah. out how big he actually is. He seems like he's, you know, a little bit larger than normal. Yeah. So he's he's a uh, six foot six inches and two hundred and seventy five pounds. So okay, thank you. Uh, that's he's yeah. tall. Your observation is correct, Josh. It is. He's yeah. definitely larger than the average guy. No, he looks like the tomato from Veggie Tales. He just he is a fucking freak. That's all I yeah, say he is. about him. His yeah. smile. Ugh. Yeah. So Rex lived a relatively ordinary life in Massapequa Park. He lived in the same home that he grew up in. He had a wife named Asa Ellerup and two children, a daughter and a stepson. And his daughter worked with him at the architectural firm. And Rex liked to hire a lot of young, petite women to work at his firm. He reportedly enjoyed grossing out employees by talking about butchering animals that he hunted. Ew. And he would even stake out business rivals to the point where Rex's own frightened workers locked themselves in the building. He kept to himself. He didn't talk to his neighbors. Many of them said he was not friendly. His house was the one in the neighborhood that parents told their children to avoid. People crossed the street to avoid him. He would frequently use an axe to chop wood in the front yard, returning any friendly hello with a silent, ominous scowl. For an architect, his house was oddly always in a state of disrepair. Some neighbors even complained to the HOA because they thought the house was lowering the property values. Rex owed a lot of money in back taxes. He was subject to six tax liens filed by the IRS in Nassau County between 2010 and 2021. 
those liens showed he owed a total of more than $425,000 in unpaid taxes going back to 2005. There are also some shady things going on in his work and dealings as an architect. In 2007, the buildings department had to investigate and see if Rex had falsely identified an apartment complex as vacant. He had been the architect hired to renovate a building in Harlem, and the fire department declared that building to be unsafe, and two dozen families who were living there were forced to evacuate. Now that we have some background knowledge about Rex, we're going to talk more about how the police were able to connect him to the murders. First were the phone bill records. Rex allegedly thought he was very clever by using burner phones to contact the girls. These phones were thought to be pretty much untraceable, and admittedly, these burner phones did make it harder to track the killer down, but not impossible. So police were able to connect those burner phone bills to Rex. These phones have been used to contact three of the Gilgo four women. Rex has not been charged with Maureen's murder yet, probably because they can't access phone records from 2007. And these burner phones linked Rex to match pings from the times and places where the girls arranged to meet. But police also had pings from more calls. As you probably remember, the killer used Melissa Bartholomew's own phone to call and taunt her sister Amanda, and a detective had called Melissa's phone later to investigate. Also, the killer had gone into Maureen Brainerd Barnes' phone to check her voicemail. All of these calls generated pings from two significant areas, Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa Park. And as we've said before, Rex worked in Midtown Manhattan, which is where he allegedly called Amanda Bartholomew. And he lived in Massapequa Park, where the victims were believed to have disappeared from. Not only did the phone locations match, but there were no pings, records, etc. that placed Rex anywhere other than those locations. So he had no alibi. There are also surveillance videos of him buying minutes for a specific burner phone at a phone store in Midtown Manhattan on May 19th, 2023. And then came the DNA evidence, which is pretty damning. Police actually collected his trash, which we have seen this in so many cases, to get DNA profiles from both Rex and his wife. Rex's DNA profile actually came from a pizza box that he threw out in New York. Police who had been tailing him grabbed the box and sent it to a lab that works specifically with difficult DNA samples. And the lab was able to swab the pizza crust and develop a profile out of it. They also collected 11 water bottles from Rex's house garbage. Investigators swabbed these bottles and were able to find Rex's wife's DNA. So now they had to compare these samples to evidence they found with the victims. Maureen had been tied with three leather belts and a female human hair had been recovered from the buckle of one of these belts. And that hair matched the DNA of Rex's wife. Two female hairs recovered near Megan's head and one found near Amber's head also matched Rex's wife. This doesn't speak to her involvement. Instead, she shed hairs normally and Rex inadvertently had them on him is the most likely scenario. We want to make that clear. But there also was male hair found at the bottom of the bag that Megan's remains were placed in. And that DNA was a match for Rex. So now police had to make an arrest. Agents in black suits followed Rex as he walked down Fifth Avenue. And then when he reached the end of the street, they got his ass. And we actually have footage from the arrest. So if you're listening, it's just him walking down the street holding a bag, casual, not expecting anything. And then they come up behind him. 
Imagine seeing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Those are probably FBI on. agents. Yeah. It's a 53 mm-hmm. second surveillance video taken from a convenience store at 35th Street and 5th Avenue. Here you see the Gilgo suspect, Rex Herman, an architect who works in Manhattan, calmly walking down 5th Avenue at 7 in the evening last Thursday night, July 13th. When the Massapequa Park resident reached the end of the block, you see a number of agents in dark suits make the arrest. And on July 13th, 2023, Rex Heuerman was arrested for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. He was quite surprised to be arrested, according to one police officer. His lawyer said that he was in tears after his arrest, saying that he didn't commit the murders. He was charged with one count of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder in each case. He pleaded not guilty, of course, and he is being held without bail, facing multiple life sentences. The prosecutor is expecting to charge Rex with the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes eventually. And as of recording this, he is on suicide watch as per the jail's standard protocol. He didn't say anything to police as he was being taken to jail except for asking, is it in the news? Oh, yes, it is, dude. Police, of course, immediately descended on Rex's house and any other properties that he owned. It was reported that Rex killed a victim in a soundproof room in his basement, but police have since denied that he had a soundproof room. However, investigators have said that he did have a vault with a big iron door, and inside he kept a stockpile of weapons. He had over 200 guns, I guess. They also said they're looking into whether or not he killed the victims in his home. There is a chance of this, but they've stopped short of confirming it. Some of the items seized included more than 200 firearms, a child-sized doll in a glass case, a large portrait of a woman with a bruised face, a cooler, computers, a mirror, a large picture frame, a filing cabinet, and many other household items. Take a look at this picture that they pulled out of the woman with a bruised face. It's creepy. That's deeply disturbing that he had this. Mm -hmm. Investigators also excavated his backyard. There have been reports that police discovered bone fragments, but this is speculation, and the police have not confirmed this. They have reported that their search of the home is complete, and they have recovered a massive amount of evidence. His storage unit at Omega Self Storage in Amityville was searched. Investigators are also looking at Rex's timeshare in Las Vegas and undeveloped land he owns in Rock Hill, South Carolina. They are looking into whether Rex is connected to unsolved cases in both of those locations, including the disappearance of Aaliyah Bell from Rock Hill. And for those who aren't familiar, in 2014, Aaliyah, who was 18 years old at the time, went missing in Rock Hill, South Carolina on November 25th. She was leaving her uncle's house on Chestnut Street around 11.15 p.m. Aaliyah was supposed to be taking a route to her godmother's house, something she did very regularly, but she never made it there and hasn't been seen since. Also, police recovered a Chevy Avalanche from a relative's property in South Carolina. So that's been brought back to New York for processing. So you might remember that police released pictures of a belt in 2020 that was associated with the case. It has since been revealed that the belt was used to tie up Maureen. But taking a minute to think about those initials on the belt, remember it was either WH or HM. Does HM stand for Hureman? Also Rex Hureman's grandfather's name was William Hureman, WH. He died in 1964. So, I mean, it seems Hmm. like that's definitely tied to him. The murders were allegedly committed while his wife was out of town. She reportedly had no idea about any of it and neither did his kids. She's currently filing for divorce and the family is staying in a hotel because their house was just completely, I mean, trashed after the police went through it. I mean, they tore it all all apart to gather evidence. They are cooperating with police and they are not considered suspects at this time. 
their life has been essentially turned upside down with the shocking news. I can't even imagine how you even oh my deal God. with this. So traumatic. And it's been horrible to see the way that the media has treated them, filming them outside of their house as if they're not victims in all of this too. Right. It's so fucked up. Like the best thing you do is just leave them alone, give yeah. them some space to just Jesus. figure out how they pick up the pieces and move on because mm-hmm. there is no worse revelation than finding out that your father, your husband. Yeah, someone you had spent so much time with over your life was capable of doing, so. oh my God, I just can't even imagine how you would begin to process. It's terrible. It's terrible. And because the house was torn up so bad by police, um, his uh, Rex's son, Christopher, who has developmental disabilities, has had had to sleep in a chair every night mm-hmm. because it's just been everything is a mess. And the daughter of the Happy Face Killer, Melissa Moore, actually has set up a GoFundMe to help Asa and her kids start a new life. As shown by cell phone records, Rex's wife was in Iceland during Melissa's murder. She was in New Jersey at the time of Amber's murder. It is undetermined if she was out of town during the other two murders as phone billing travel financial records for her from 2007 were no longer available due to retention policies. And since the arrest, shocked residents, neighbors, and acquaintances have spoken out about the situation and they would like for the home to be demolished and completely razed. They are understandably unhappy with all the media attention that swarmed their once quiet neighborhood. Here's some neighbors' reactions to the recent developments. We've been here for about 30 years, and, and the guy's been quiet, never really bothers anybody. Um, we're kind of shocked, to tell you the truth, you know. Do you know him? Yeah, his name is Rex. Um, he's got a, a, a wife and, and uh, two kids. The guy pretty much keeps himself. We just say hello to each other, and, and that's, that's about it. You know, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. Like I said, we're shocked. Because this is a very, very quiet neighborhood. Everybody knows each other. All you know, all of our neighbors are you know, we're all friendly, and there's never been a problem at all. Not a, not a, a scream, a yell, nothing. It's crazy. It's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. It's you know, quiet ass people park. <laughs> Shocking. Sad. <laughs> really, I mean, you think of the the victims. It's sad. It's tragic. It's not about him. It's not about us. It's about the victims. It's just really unsettling knowing that something like this literally hits so close to home. It's a quiet town. Everyone knows each other. Nothing really goes on. So it was just surprising to hear and kind of scary. I was like, holy crap. Um, Unbelievable right now town. James Pagano couldn't believe when he heard the name of the suspect because he went to high school with Rex Hurman. He was uh, very quiet, dark, um, kept to himself and um, extremely intelligent. Very smart. That's really interesting to hear. The last guys, he went to high school with him. He was dark, mm-hmm. really smart, mm-hmm. and a lot of the and seemed to keep to himself, isolated. I mean, he's got all of the uh, traits of a serial killer, I guess you could say. There's been a lot of reports too that he was bullied. Mm-hmm. Not to say yeah. there's a that's another big, but big part of it, though. It's not like an excuse, but no, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very common in these cases. So, do you think the other thing I kind of was thinking about during that? Um, some of those interviews was everybody's like it's quiet we never heard a scream or anything like that so it seems like unless he kept his you know if he did in fact bring his victims back to his house which i don't think he did necessarily we don't know at this point 
but I, I don't know. it seems like that would be super risky for him to do that though when mm -hmm. you think to bring him to this quiet neighborhood no. to where he lives where he's trying to like fly under the radar well that's how those rumors started about the soundproof room but you know that's been cleared up as well it is a like a really fortified room though like a lot of iron and um concrete so it's not soundproof but he very well could have but it's yeah, yeah it's going to be a lot more muffled than mm -hmm. a you can create the... other noise too. Yeah. 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 I mean, at this point, we don't know what they have found exactly. I just cannot imagine one of your neighbors. Like, think, think about, I feel like everyone at some point in their life has lived near someone who you didn't really know who they were. They weren't like super friendly, kept to themselves and didn't think much of them. Yeah, we Find have. Out, oh, yeah, for sure. Growing up, I did too. Like, there's always those people in my mind that I would just be, I mean, it would be shocking if any of your neighbors ended up being a serial killer, but wow. I mean, you'd feel so scared and violated and so freaky. And it makes you think of all the serial killers out there that haven't been caught, which there are huge numbers who are just out living amongst us. Yeah, that's terrifying. I know. But this kind of evil can exist in such a quiet, peaceful could be your fucking neighbor, man. Yeah. It's insane. Could be your boss. Mm -hmm. Could be anybody. I thought it was interesting how the first man in that interview um, talked about how they would say hello, and he seemed like friendly, not overly friendly, but he didn't describe him as as rude or cold as other neighbors have described him. But I think it's very clear, though, that Rex is is definitely intelligent and he knew he had to sort of play mm -hmm. play along to, to to remain under the radar for so long i mean that's mm -hmm. the only way that you do it is you don't raise suspicion right although this next clip we're about to watch definitely i think raises a little bit of suspicion as oh yeah a lot, a of, lot people, of just a lot of people lot don't of really suspicion. do this anymore so no he would burn his garbage and uh, we, I would smell it. And I would always wonder, like, why is this guy burning his garbage again? When I was 18, 19 years old, I heard digging in the backyard next door. Um, now, I really wanted to go and check out what it was and like look through the fence. The fence had little fake grass on it. Um, but some, something stopped myself from doing it. Um, you know, I was nervous. I wasn't too sure what I was hearing at the time. Good call, because who knows what he would have done if he saw someone looking at what he was yeah, doing. burning trash in a neighborhood like that is uh -huh. pretty pretty weird yep the only time i've really seen people burning trash is like out in rural communities because sometimes mm -hmm. there's not like uh disposal service stuff like that or sometimes yeah. people just like to burn yeah burn their trash or whatever so my neighbors used to burn trash growing up and it would smell so bad outside oh it's so bad really? yeah. it's so bad mm -hmm. i've never smelled that I'm sure it's awful well, yeah, because a lot of people just burn whatever. You know what I mean? You got plastics burning and stuff Ugh. and all the toxic fumes coming out is horrible for everybody around. I mean, it, yeah, it's noticeable. Like, you'll notice when you go outside. So it makes me think, like, either someone that just doesn't give a shit, you know, or someone that really, really wants something gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what is he burning? Evidence? Or well, is he just burning his trash? Could just be burning his trash. Or he's just burning his trash because it's got D his DNA on it. Yep. But that's what's interesting is they ended up getting him from his trash. So he yeah, clearly. Oh, he thought he was doing it sneaky in public like that, mm -hmm. dishing his pizza. And mm -hmm. There you go. Anyway, one anonymous 25 year old woman said that she actually had an encounter with Rex at a park on July 3rd. 
She said he made her highly uncomfortable by following her and continually pestering her with questions and compliments. And she was so scared that she called her sister to come pick her up and she even filed a police report. One former escort who went out on a date with Rex has come forward to speak about her experience and what she has to say is truly chilling. Here's a clip of her speaking about it with Anderson Cooper. We sat down. He seemed perfectly normal at first. He seemed like your typical guy who was bored with his life, you know, and wanted some kind of excitement. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, it didn't get weird until he asked me if I was a true crime fan. Wait a minute. He asked you if Ooh. you were a true crime fan. He asked if I was a true crime fan, and I am. Like, uh. I am a, I'm a serial killer buff. I won't even lie. I. Uh. It was when he said, well, do you know about the Gilgo Beach, the Gilgo Beach murders? He actually brought it up. Yeah. He said, so he has said to me exactly, do you know about the Gilgo Beach murders? And I was like, yeah, I'm from Long Island. Everybody from Long Island knows about them. You know what I mean? Um, and that's when he started talking about it. But here's the thing. When he brought it up, his whole demeanor changed. It, it, he, he sat up straighter, you know, he had like a smirk on his face. He seemed almost like too excited to talk about it. And then once he did start talking about it, it didn't seem like a true crime fan who just knows information they've seen on TV or read. Mm -hmm. It seemed like somebody who was reliving it. One, one thing I remember specifically was he said to me, how do you think they get rid of the bodies without going notice? And I said, I have no clue. I've never been to Gilgo Beach. I don't know the access points. Like, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I've, I have no idea. And he said, what if they treaded through the marsh the, with the burlap sacks? You would never see them. Uh, he's like, it's a very dark and desolate area. Holy shit. That is so fucking scary. Wow. That's just crazy. This this guy was trudging through the marshes with mm -hmm. bodies. Yep. I guess they were remains. He made it easier. It wasn't like he was dragging them through the marsh. He had them in the bags. Oh, wow. I know. That's, God, that's just chilling. Another woman who was once in a networking group for architects with Rex has also come forward about her experiences with him. Here's part of a voicemail that he had left her and what she has to say. Hey, this is Rex. Yeah, I had a question for you. I also wanted to touch base. Oh. I assumed he just wanted to do some work together, um, but he always made me a little bit uncomfortable. And then he asked me if I knew about the Gilgo Beach murders. Um, and back then, I was like, oh, you know, he's just from that area. But now I just see it as a serial killer um, kind of just putting it in somebody's face. Or he's he's trying to vet out a victim, potentially. I mean, possibly. To see if they, you know, if they know about it or not. But it could just be him gloating about it, which would be... I mean, I think he was just obsessed with all of it and thinking he was like so it, smart it gives him it's an some, ego thing yeah it gives He's him a some sick satisfaction away to hear, with it all this time hear people tell him about it mm -hmm. uh, yeah totally so recently released court documents give us better insight into the evidence against rex they also included startling details about what exactly investigators found first there's the tinder account that rex used his amex to pay for he used the name andy 
his middle name is Andrew, and connected the account to a burner phone number and fake email, both under fake names. And Rex was seeing sex workers up until recently. All records for two of the burner cell phones showed that they were used extensively between 2021 and 2023 to contact sex workers and massage parlors. Um, So perhaps he stopped killing after 2011 because he was scared of getting caught after all those remains were found. Or there are more victims that we don't know about. There could be more unknown victims from pre-2012 as well, or 2011. Yeah. Investigators found that Rex had multiple burner email accounts, including one under the alias Thomas Hawk or thawk080672 at gmail.com. Rex used this account to make searches for violent torture porn, rape porn, and child porn. He searched not only the victims' names hundreds of times, but he obsessively image searched the names of their relatives, sisters, and even children. The searches are pretty disturbing. One uses the term Asian twink tied up, which might be a connection to the unidentified victim, that Asian male. Between March 2022 and June 2023, the T-Hawk email account was used to make over 200 searches related to serial killers, the murders of the Gilgo Four, and the investigation into those murders. These are some of the articles viewed in searches made. Uh, a number of them are deeply disturbing, and we will not be including those uh, up on the screen for the episode. But if you want to take a look at those, obviously viewer discretion advised. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes and description for you if you want to go take a look at those. But they are very, very dark, very, very disturbing. The account also viewed many documentaries and podcasts about the case, as well as hundreds of pictures of the victims and their relatives. Rex also searched for the very same task force that was about to bring him down. Prosecutors have stated that there does not seem to be a connection between Rex Hewerman and the Atlantic City serial killings, which are also known as the Black Horse Pike killings. So this is just everything we know as of this recording, but this is really just the beginning. This case is developing and we'll probably be finding out a lot more information as the discovery process goes on. The prosecution has been trying to get a DNA cheek swab from Rex. His defense has been fighting it, but literally... During this episode, it broke that the judge is ordering that he turn a sample over, which is a huge win. Today, Megan Waterman's daughter, Lily, is 16 years old and doing well. She wants her mother not to be remembered and written off as a prostitute, but a mother who cared deeply about her child. Sadly, Megan's mother, Lorraine Ela, passed away in 2022 at the age of 55. With Rex's arrest comes a mix of anger and relief. It's a bittersweet moment as it feels like the process starts all over again. Megan was a girl that had her whole life ahead of her. Her family hopes that the person responsible for ending her life will be punished. In a disturbing turn of events on July 23rd, 2016, Shannon Gilbert's mother, Mary, was murdered by her daughter, Sarah. Sarah was potentially suffering from psychosis at the time of the murder. Sarah had drowned the family dog and lost custody of her son. She blamed this on Mary and fatally stabbed her to death in her home. Mary was 52, and Sarah told police that voices in her head had ordered her to kill her mother. Now, one thing to note is that Sarah was administered the MFAST, which is uh, stands for Miller Forensic Assessment of Symptoms Test. Basically, it's a screening tool that's used to determine the likelihood that someone is faking a psychiatric illness. And prosecutors have said that um, her score pointed to malingering, which means faking it or exaggerating. So, Sherry Gilbert, Shannon's sister, is very happy that police have made an arrest in the case. For what he did to the victims, Sherry hopes he rots in prison for the rest of his life, and I'm sure we can all agree to that. He destroyed so many lives, and with all the tragedy in the Gilbert family, it's a relief that Sherry was able to see some justice. 
Kim Overstreet misses her sister Amber every day, but it brings her peace to know that she is resting alongside her family. And with Rex's arrest, she now has a sense of closure. It's also a relief that he won't be able to hurt anyone else ever again. Melissa Bartholomew's mother, Lynn, is relieved at the news of the arrest as well. She says that death would be too easy for her daughter's killer. She wants him to suffer at the hands of other inmates. In her words, let him receive what the girls received. Jessica Taylor's cousin wants her to be remembered as a beautiful woman whose life was taken far too soon. She is loved and missed every day. The family is optimistic that Rex will be linked to her murder soon. Maureen's family is confident that Rex will be charged with Maureen's murder as well, giving her the long overdue justice that she and they deserve. Her sister Melissa has fought long and hard to get justice for her sister, and she never gave up hope that her killer would one day be caught. We hope that the families of the victims can know some sort of peace after all these hard years, and we hope that the unidentified victims can be identified and that their killer is brought to justice. None of them will be forgotten. So we're going to wrap up our coverage there. There's a good chance that we will continue our coverage later on as more information comes out or if it's confirmed that there were more victims. Um, Our editor, James, created a great memorial video for the victims, and we wanted to leave you all with that today.